the Buddha was constantly asked to give talks on a whole wider range of subjects that he uh, wasn't interested in. They had nothing to do with human suffering. And he would refuse each time to comment. There's some famous suttas where a character named Washagoda, who's well, an important figure in Buddhist lore, would constantly ask the Buddha to explain where the cosmos came about, how the world came about, various theories about whether consciousness was the same thing as the body or separate and all this stuff. And the Buddha would each time say, no, that's not what I teach. And in the wonderful water snake sutta, he basically finally says, look, I don't care. The only thing I teach is what causes suffering and what brings it to an end. So that's it. <laughs> Stop asking me. So he uses the word dukkha. Dukkha can mean a lot of different things. It's often translated as suffering or stress or mental agitation. You can, essentially, it's all the spinning out, the busyness, the anxiety, and the reactiveness that we add on to life, especially when things are not going as we want. It's um, the mind that craves security and happiness externally through things we don't have a great deal of control over. Short-term sensual pleasures, shopping, financial gain, competing with other people for attention, trying to be in relationships and other experiences that are not available, etc. The mind that is chasing happiness where it's not consistently available. This this chasing after, this feeling that we have to do something, we have to stay busy, we can't let go, we can't just be with life as it is, the essential survival mode of the mind, where the constant need to do, to act, to accumulate, to keep track of, to stay busy, to uh, indicative of the stressful survival state. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The Buddha referred to expressed dukkha in a number of different ways. He compared it to people, the metaphor of people running around as if their hair was on fire. <laughs> he compared people who are in dukkha or needless suffering as fish flopping about and drying out puddles. <laughs> he used words like kamachanda, seeking addictively soothing pleasures. Kukucha, staying always hypervigilant and alert. Udaka, busyness, an inability to relax. And vichikicha, a constant feeling of inadequacy. There's something missing that has to be accumulated in the world. I'm not good enough as I am. I need to win approval. I need to accomplish. I need to show people. I need to do something <laughs> to get love. So it's a constant state of needing to do and stay busy and act a feeling of vulnerability, if we rest, we relax, we don't, we switch off the phone, we don't answer the text, we don't look at the, uh, the smartphone, we don't respond to the email, we don't put, we actually allow ourselves to put down the dramas at work or the interpersonal dramas and we allow things to, that are not meant to be, to be let go of. 75% of Americans report 
moderate high to extreme levels of constant stress. That's pretty bad. Only 25% of us responded as having low to little stress. We have difficulty switching off constant feelings of anxiety, feelings of vulnerability that something, a bill could arrive, something could happen that could render us in a unsafe situation. When we are activated by survival mode, the first thing that happens is the brain, uh, part of the brain, the midbrain, uh, triggers what's called norepinephrine, which is uh, adrenaline. And that's a uh, hormone that essentially boosts your feeling of you have to do something, makes you feel powerful, that rush of adrenaline. Um, it distorts reality. It puts you in the fight-flight movement. And I read a scary, scary report. They did a... They did a... They did tests of um, the young, generally men, who work on Wall Street, who determines the financial industry's boom and bust cycles, and they found that they are constantly on adrenaline rushes. They're just constantly activating their adrenaline, which uh, essentially keeps them busily making trades and, and pushing through actions that are needless. When we uh, release adrenaline, what adrenaline generally feels good. It makes you feel powerful, but what it is followed with is cortisol, the stress hormone that puts your body in a state of fight or flight. You'll basically find your muscles activating, the heart will start gulping air, you'll start feeling the blood pumping through the veins, you'll stop digesting food, you'll stop uh, producing insulin, which will keep glucose in your blood so that you can keep up using energy. Cortisol is really bad for human beings on an extended period. It raises our blood pressure, it causes clogged arteries, depression, obesity. It's not good to be in chronic stress, yet somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of Americans are in chronic stress. Despite the fact that stress is not good for us, and it, it actually creates tension in the body, it actually is very, very addictive. People are addicted to stress. The first part you're addicted to is the adrenaline, because the adrenaline boost feels exciting. The second part is the dopamine, which keeps you in the hunt, keeps you chasing after the relationship that isn't available, keeps you chasing after the drug that you're interested in attaining, keeps you on Amazon looking for the perfect deal, keeps us... Uh, uh, glued to the television set playing or the Netflix or keeps us glued to the whatever endeavor it is that keeps us hooked. And dopamine makes us feel powerful. And interestingly enough, dopamine, which is a very pleasurable, rewarding neurotransmitter, more of it is released while we're in the hunt for something then is actually released when we attain the thing that we are looking for. Coke addicts on uh, fMRIs, and they found out that they were far more activated while they were trying to get the cocaine than when they actually got it. The gambler is more active, not when they're winning, but when they're looking to place the bet. 
the shopaholic is actually more neurally rewarded while they're hunting for the bargain than when they actually click purchase. Finally, when you attain whatever it is we're looking for, the deal, selling the house, buying the thing, acquiring the food, whatever it is, when we finally have achieved the task, there's a short-term release of beta-endorphin, which allows us to relax, and then all of these rewarding neurotransmitters fade, and then we fall from the high of the hunt to the crash. There's a falling away and a rebound effect where the person who is, for instance, looking for drugs after they, uh, they achieve the drug of choice, whether it's a behavior or an addiction or whatever, the next morning there's shame, regret, despair, uh, feelings of defeat. If we're hunting after some relationship or experience that is not available, then we will feel the high while we're with the person and then the crash afterwards. If we're chasing after um, some object, a shiny new iPad or whatever, when we'll buy it, we'll feel great, then there'll be the crash of the, oh, it's just another gizmo. There's nothing great about it after all. And then we'll have to wait until we're neurally back in the hunt again. So the survival state is one of excitation, where we're addicted to the internal neural drugs that make us feel excited. And like all amphetamines, all speed rushes, it comes to a crash. And then there's the down state. And so all states, whether of hunting or acquiring or accumulating or trying to get or caught up in survival states or drama, is based on high crash, high crash. It's a constant state of flux. There's no stability in it. And on the one hand, it's very, very addictive. It's very, very difficult to let go of. And yet, at the same time, there's no lasting peace of mind in it available at all. So, it's very destabilizing. And what it obscures is the fact that there is available to human beings what's known as human beings, what's known as homeostatic states. Homeostasis are states that don't have highs and lows, that don't have negative repercussions, that don't have rebounds, that are, in fact, produce lasting and reliable states of ease. The goal of the spiritual path as finding those states, those behaviors that reliably create long-term peace of mind, homeostasis. So the thing about homeostasis states is that they work against change. They create a lasting state of ease that is sustainable that doesn't require getting something that you don't have, that doesn't ask you to do something that's dramatic, that doesn't have any danger to it, that doesn't have any possibility of um, failing. Most of the survival, drama, boom and crash behaviors involve competing. We're competing after resources that are increasingly scarce. Most of 
homeostasis behaviors involve no competition. You can't fail at them. You cannot fail at a behavior that's based on homeostasis. What are some of these behaviors? The first is bonding with other people, sharing your emotional life, listening to theirs. There's no way you can share your emotions poorly if you're sharing your emotions. There's no competition. Did I share my sadness better than your other friend? It's not possible. There's also altruism, which means essentially volunteering your time, your service to care for someone who is... Uh, wounded and needs attention and help. Again, there's no way to do altruism competitively. If you're doing altruism competitively, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's simply about, can I let go of thinking about uh, accumulating more, achieving more, winning more approval so I can find some elusive happiness, and can I instead give my time to others. When we do that, we subvert the idea that there's something missing from us that we need to achieve or attain. The very act of doing any form of volunteerism, any form of service, completely forces us to get out of the craving, the addictive mind state. A third is self-soothing activities. You can't do competitive gardening. Well, maybe some people can, but most people can. Competitive walking would be stupid. Competitive drawing would be dumb. Competitive sitting and strumming a guitar, knitting. Competitive yoga, I've heard of it. I think it's insane. Competitive cooking is also out there, and it's also equally stupid. We're talking about activities that are essentially rewarding because you can't fail, you can relax, and the key to homeostasis is that you can stop doing it and there will not be any addictive feel of I have to do it more. Nobody volunteers at a soup kitchen and then at the end of a shift goes, oh, but I, I, you know, I have to keep on. Nobody, <laughs> nobody you know, uh, who's knitting, and suddenly they get an important phone call because, uh, oh, I'm sorry, but I have to do five more stitches or whatever. <laughs> it's not addictive, and therefore there's no highs or lows, there's no boom and crash, there's no rebound. It's just something that when you do it, it's what uh, the neuroscientist, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, uh, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, Anyway, he's Hungarian. He's not meant to have his name pronounced. Chick um, Haas, I think it is. Uh, anyway, he called it flow. If you look up neural flow, it's basically an activity that you can't fail at, that sustains your attention, that focuses your awareness, that involves hand-to-eye coordination. And the more you do it, you will find that anything that's triggering the addictive uh, tendencies of the mind will be put aside. So very often people in recovery from addictions, in addition to doing service and in addition to having a sponsor, will pick up a behavior that provides flow, um, with, but in a way that doesn't addict the mind. I actually know of a lot of 
uh, friends who were heroin addicts who are members of running clubs, uh, that actually produces a little bit more endorphin. But just the thing of running actually creates a state of flow. Um, finally, of course, uh, the most homeostatic event of our behavior of all is, of course, meditation. What you're doing is focusing your awareness in conjunction with your body to create <coughs> change-resistant states of ease. There is nothing more homeostatic than meditation in the sense that most people, when they are doing it correctly, they will do it for a period of time. When it ends, they can move back into their life without any feeling of, but I need to have more of this. I can't. I can't stop watching House of Cards now. I have to play the next eight episodes. <laughs> There's not that feeling with, with meditation. That was me, by the way, pushing the click button. <laughs> All right, so, um, so you get it. There's, there's, there's survival state, which is boom and crash, which is synonymous with excitation. And then there's homeostatic states, which are rewarded with dope, uh, serotonin, oxytocin, which are inhibitory neurotransmitters. They don't excite the brain. They actually switch off the regions that you don't need so you can relax. That's the thing about self-soothing behaviors, is that they don't excite the brain, but they focus attention. So they create this neural steady state mode where there's a feeling of reliable, constant ease. Now, nobody is saying that you have to give up all of your addictive dramas in your life. It's, uh, all of this is to simply talk about attaining balance in our life. If we find that we are overly reliant upon chasing after our happiness through that which involves accumulation, acquiring, seeking approval, financial gain, winning other people's attention, trying to get what's not available, dramatic situations. If that's where we're getting the bulk of our happiness, then we are politely invited by the Buddha to rebalance towards also introducing to the mind uh, neural practices that are always unconditionally available and rewarding. Now, to do this requires what I call a moment of clarity, which I'm lifting from 12-step language, um, because stress and drama is so <laughs> addictive and it's so rewarded by capitalism, the idea that you need to buy your happiness, that you need to accumulate your sense of security, that you're not secure as you are. You need to work on your 401k. You need to acquire more and more. You need to get this or that. Um, to give ourselves any chance to find happiness in homeostatic states, we have to have a moment of clarity where we see, oops, I'm not finding lasting happiness here. I'm not finding peace of mind in this accumulation achievement, this constant busyness, this constant trying to get more money or accumulate more approval from people or to try to win love from people who are not available. So the, there's two ways we have that moment of clarity. And having been 
not only sober for 21 years, but having had 10 years of being a Buddhist teacher and mentor, I hear these over and over and over again, not just as the moments of clarity that bring uh, addicts into sobriety, but bring people into spiritual practice when they bottom out through work, when they bottom out in relationships, when they bottom out through shopping or food addictions. The two forms of clarity are one, bottoming out, which means achieving a state where we can no longer live in denial that an activity is causing suffering in our lives. Bottoming out and seeing with clarity means that we no longer live in the denial that, for instance, our drinking is causing our isolation, our loss of relationships. It's seeing the connection between an action and the result. So a workaholic who has a moment of clarity sees for the first time, no matter how much I work, no matter how much I make, no matter how much I seek the approval of my boss or the people around me, it's not translating into lasting happiness. And like all addictions, it's pushing the people who are really available away from me. It's isolating me. It's not allowing me to feel true, lasting happiness. So that moment where we finally say, ah, I can't be in denial anymore. It's giving up also the delusion that we can keep up doing the same thing and we'll get different results. I can keep spending, I can keep this approach to relationships, I can keep this approach to work, I can keep this approach to food, I can keep this approach to shopping going, and I won't somehow, somehow I'll I'll encounter the magic solution. It's finally losing hope that we're going to find lasting happiness in areas that are not meant to give us lasting happiness. They're meant to give us thrills, but not lasting happiness. So at one point, the workaholic or the shopaholic or the food addict or the uh, substance abuser or the person that is constantly trying to find love from people who are not available, they have that moment where they see, I can't continue to do this. I have to give up. It's not going to be the answer. And that bottoming out opens up the hope that they will start to turn towards homeostasis. They'll turn towards friends who are available. They'll turn towards giving love and attention to other people who need care. They'll turn towards self-soothing behaviors. They'll turn towards spiritual practice. And then in that giving up, they might actually find a good balance in the way they return to those activities, to shopping, to food, to work, to relationships. The second approach, or the second way that we have moments of clarity is through empathetic mirroring by another. I've worked with countless people in recovery in one sense or another, and so many report that just before they achieve that moment of insight, they have their suffering mirrored back to them by another person. They're sitting there talking about their lives, and even though they don't know how far they've fallen, how much suffering is going on, that other person goes, starts crying or starts looking at them with sadness and says, wow, you're really in a lot of pain. 
And the person who's addicted is not aware of it because they've become so much uh, isolated from true friends and so much deprived of mirroring that they're unaware of the level of suffering and the lack of happiness in their own life. But somehow that other person mirrors their own suffering back to them. I've had this happen in my own life. Uh, on a number of occasions during my using days were friends when I would blithely talk about, you know, the degradation that would happen of trying to uh, drink and do as much drugs as would make me uh, feel even on an even par with other people. They would reflect back to me a state of aghast and a state of sorrow and a state of discomfort. And I would see my own unhappiness clearer in their own expression than in my own experience. This is because as infants, when we're born, we are set up as infants to get emotional understanding and recognition of our emotions through the other through connecting with a mother or a father, and when we're frightened, have the parents say, oh, you're frightened, or have a parent go, oh, you're sad, or oh, you're, you're shocked, or oh, you're happy. But if in crucial moments of childhood, the parent or the adults fail to mirror the child, or over a period of time, we isolate ourselves from other people and don't express our emotions enough, we won't we'll lose touch with how much suffering is going on in our life. And we'll allow ourselves to go deeper and deeper and deeper into a fruitless hunt for happiness that is unavailable in the behaviors where we're seeking it. So, in connecting and in sharing and in expressing our emotional states, we increase the likelihood that we'll have those moments of clarity that will finally shock us out of uh, our misery. I remember one woman who told me about being in a really painful experience with uh, a parent that she was trying to get love from that was not capable of giving it, and she didn't realize how desperate her her behaviors had become, and when she saw my expression of sadness at how much she was bending her life out of shape to getting love where it wasn't available, she broke down and finally had that moment of recognition. So, um, anyway, I thank you for listening. I hope there was something that was worth reflecting on tonight. Find a, a really comfortable, relaxed seat, which is less about putting any effort in than it is about uh, just finding a good balance, <laughs> keeping your body, the top part of your body, in a nice balance with the hips below, alignment, keeping the head in line with the shoulders so that your head doesn't droop in front of the body. And so pretty much a, a good uh, alignment can happen simply by tilting the head a little bit more upwards than we normally do. And that sort of forces the back of the head back, and then that forces the neck back. And then what happens is naturally the shoulders tend to 
realign a little bit, and then what you can do is let's take a nice deep in-breath, pull the shoulders up towards the ears, and then with the out-breath, a really long out-breath, and drop your shoulders, and as you drop them, allow them to slightly pull back so you open up the chest. And so just that motion of uh, relaxing the shoulders and tilting the head slightly up is enough generally to keep that nice balance. And then you don't really have to put much effort in. And then uh, take a nice deep in-breath and tighten the muscles of the abdomen and just hold them in. And then as you breathe out, really soften the belly. And then for the third... In breath, let's tighten any muscles you like that you feel you'd like to tighten, like the face, the fist, the toes, the buttocks, anything that you'd like to tighten, just tighten, and then as you breathe out, really soften. <laughs> For those of you who practice yoga, uh, in many practices of savasana before going into the full easeful state, people will tighten muscles throughout the body and then relax. So it's a very good technique to uh, bring ease to various parts of the body. So for this meditation, we'll start with a basic concentration exercise and uh, whatever you choose for your concentration object is fine. You can use the sounds of the room, <coughs> the sensations of the body sitting and making contact with the ground. You could use the sensations of the breath, just observing your body breathing in and out. You could simply repeat a very simple phrase such as, may I feel safe, may I feel peaceful. Any phrase that's very simple, you can coin your own metaphrase. You don't have to use a prefabricated one. May I accept myself as I am, may I feel loved. Any combination of words that sets an intention to establish an inner feeling state of ease, peace. Metta is never about accumulating material rewards in the world. It's always about simply setting one's aim to develop an inner feeling So, start with whatever meditation object, sometimes I call that an anchor for your awareness, whatever anchor you wish, sounds, sensations, breath, metaphrase, and just gently try to keep that event first and foremost in your awareness. You don't have to push any thought away whenever a thought appears in your mind just know what 
its basic topic is. But keep your awareness on the anchor. Sometimes I like to think of it as uh, similar to Netflix. There's all these movies you can watch. And so your thoughts will be presenting you with a lot of thoughts that you can think. And just look at the description, but then say, no thanks, I'll stay present right now.
So it's inevitable that when we try to retrain the mind to find some security and ease within, that it will seek out the most dramatic flashy event that's going on internally, which would of course be thoughts. And it will latch on to thoughts because they produce the most excitation and thrill. A thought can take you away from the present and take you, kidnap the mind and deposit it in a fantasy far away from the present. So thoughts can be very addictive, to say the least. So part of the process of spiritual practice is not just rebalancing the mind away from its over-fascination with the world around us at the expense of internal awareness, but also it's over-fascination with thoughts at the expense of paying attention to the body, moods, emotions, feelings. It's all about rebalancing awareness. So when the thought kidnaps you and you wake up in a memory or a daydream, a to-do list, don't add any judgment about yourself or any frustration. Just regard it as an entirely natural part of developing a spiritual practice. At first, and continually throughout the years of practice, thoughts will slip in and grab awareness and pull it away. And what's more important than just somehow magically developing fully constant, ongoing, present-time awareness is to actually develop patience, kindness to yourself, friendliness to the experience, gentleness, just Escort your mind back to the present without anything other than appreciation for your effort. Nothing wrong is happening.
surface point, if you like, you can drop keeping your anchor in the forefront of awareness and just allow awareness to stay present and allow it to address any sensation that arises. So if a feeling in the body appears, just observe it, a sound, an emotional state, a state of anxiousness in the mind, or a jumpy awareness, just observe, see if you can cultivate a kind of detachment from your experience where one part of the mind observes the rest of experience rather than gets caught up. At first, this takes a good deal of practice, but eventually over time you'll find that you can watch as the mind bounces about anxiously or gets tired, gets filled with judgment or gets tempted by thoughts, and you just have this awareness that's present and kind of like the lens of a movie camera, just observing without identifying or pushing anything away. And if a thought arises that's really sticky, that wants to kidnap you away from all the present experience, just, again, just note the topic. Allow it to be there, but don't unpack it, give it attention, and then allow yourself to be kidnapped by it. Just allow it to be there without any resistance or attachment to it. Just keep the mind's interest in sensations, feelings, emotions that are primarily physical or not entirely made up.
as we transition from a meditation, always remember to take a moment to reflect on the virtue and value of your practice. The virtue being that it's not easy to go about developing a practice that, despite how beneficial it is, is so little rewarded by the world around us. Even though your practice creates states of ease, is a great benefit to your mental and physical health, even though it puts you in no conflict with other beings and doesn't harm anyone else, there'll be no external rewards for having a practice. So you have to reward yourself for your practice. Reminding yourself that it's blameless, unconditionally available. And if you have a source of peace that comes from within, you have a unconditionally available source of ease in your life that doesn't exploit or harm anyone else. It's not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. When you hear the sound of the bowl, just take your time. Don't look around the room and take in all the sights. Just first look at the ground and see if you can Balance sight into all the other sensory awareness that you've developed during this last half an hour. If you simply latch onto thoughts and sight, you'll find that you lose connection with the body, with the breath, with emotion regulation and awareness, with awareness of mood and your attention, feelings. So we're after a balanced awareness where we can hold all of the present and all its richness. And that's very easy to do once we train the mind to do it.